0: Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And if you're using the Pew Bible today, you can find that on page 1025. As has been said, this is the first Sunday in Advent, and Advent means coming. And so this is a time of waiting and anticipation as we approach the celebration of the coming of the Messiah. And so each year we focus our sermon series for the four weeks of Advent around the coming of Christ in order to prepare us for Christmas. And for obvious reasons, the sermon texts tend to focus on the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. And last year I mentioned how if we are not careful, then our familiarity with these texts, can rob us of our sense of awe. I said that I, I would hope to awaken in us a sense of wonder in taking a fresh look at the familiar and see how it ought to impact our lives and community. When God's providence, I come today with a sermon from the same text I preached on last year. Where last year we looked at the presence of Christmas, God's presence with us. Today we'll look at the sovereign purpose of God's Son. I think there's a great lesson here for all of us, myself included. Now I have recently been encouraging us to turn to the scriptures. I think this will be a lesson to turn to them over and over again. I hope today we'll see that God's word is living and active, that we will never exhaust it. And that even when it comes to texts that we feel extremely familiar with, they can offer new insight and encouragement each time we come to them. Now, the text I've been assigned for today is printed in your bulletin is Matthew 1, 18 through 21. But after Dr. Poyer gave us that wonderful sermon on the genealogy from Genesis 5 a couple weeks ago, and mentioned that all of the biblical genealogies are moving ahead to Jesus, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to include this genealogy in the opening of Matthew. So we're actually going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. And let's turn there now. This is God's word. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliad the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Amen. Praise God for his word to us. Now, I would like to organize our time today under the following three headings First, what's in a name? Second, to save his people from their sins. And finally, living as his people. So our first heading is, What's in a name? What's in a name? That which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell as sweet. This line from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Juliet laments that it is only Romeo's name that pits their love in the midst of feuding families. The name is rather meaningless, she suggests. Call him something else. He'll still be the man who captured her heart, just as a rose would still smell sweet if called something else. And of course, there's some truth to this. 20 years ago, I was on the opening team at the Applebee's in Montgomeryville, which sadly closed this year. Well, there were so many Bryans hired as a part of that opening team that things became confusing. Whose table is that? Whose food is that? Saying it was Brian's was not helpful. And so one day I decided to get a new name tag and I wrote Clark on it, like Clark Kent, mild-mannered restaurant worker. I had a very humble view of myself in those days. And so I introduced myself to my tables. Hi, I'm Clark. I'll be taking care of you. And I went by Clark at all times while at work for several months until there were no other Bryans left, and then I changed back. (laughs) Having a different name didn't affect my ability to work or to get paid. He who you know as Brian, by any other name, can effectively wait tables. On a more serious note parents will often put serious thought into the names that they give their children. It could be intended to honor a relative, or it may be the meaning that a name has that they would like and desire to see in their children. But as parents, we really have no ability to ensure that our children will possess the same characteristics of a relative that they're named for, nor that they will exemplify the meaning behind their name. And in our text today, we see a child given a name. Actually, he's given several names. But these names don't come from parents thinking through a list of relatives or flipping through the pages of a baby names book or website. This child receives names from God himself. And when a sovereign God, who is able to speak and call forth light out of darkness and create the world by the power of his word, when he speaks to name a child, it is not in mere hopes that they will exemplify the characteristics of the name's meaning. For God to say it means it's as good as done. So what's in a name? Let's look at these names and how they show us the sovereign purpose of God's Son. Now for us English speakers, when we read the opening of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. It catches us in a particular way. Immediately, we understand that this isn't just any story that begins one day and then goes on to tell us about regular, everyday kind of events. Those words, in the beginning, tell us that this is a story of origins on a cosmic level. When we come to Matthew's gospel, we read the book of the genealogy. And it doesn't hit us in quite the same way. Perhaps we're tempted to skip to verse 18 and not have to worry about pronouncing all of those names there. But if you were a Greek-speaking Jew of the first century, I think the first sentence of Matthew would be every bit as captivating as the first sentence of John, and perhaps more so. Those opening words in Greek are Biblos genesteos the book of Genesis, the origin of Jesus Christ. So we have the name Christ here, which sadly for many in our day is kind of treated like his last name, but that's not what it is. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. So when they read this opening, this is the promised deliverer that the Jewish people have been waiting for for thousands of years. These opening words, "Biblos are the very same as the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 5 that Dr. Poyer preached from a few weeks ago. It shows the sovereign hand of God working in and among his people from generation to generation. Not just to come to Noah or to Abraham, as in the book of Genesis, but to come to the Messiah. So what's in the name Christ? All of this. All of God's faithfulness to his people from generation to generation with his promises that are realized in the Messiah. And he's here. He's come. See, the sovereign hand of God working and the power of the Holy Spirit in the genesis of the Messiah. It's like a new genesis happening right here in the beginning of Matthew. The dawning of a new day. A new creation because Messiah is here. But would-be Messiahs have shown up in the past. And so Matthew goes on with the name, the son of David. What's in this name? Well, David is the great king. He's the man after God's own heart. God makes a covenant with David that God himself will raise up David's offspring and establish his kingdom and throne forever. So the Messiah is to be David's descendant. And you can see how Matthew emphasizes this in the genealogy that moves from Abraham to David and then two-thirds of that genealogy are descendants of David. Right up to Joseph, who will later be greeted by the angel as Joseph, son of David. What's in this name? There are many sons of David listed here. Some of them are relatively good, Many of them are downright evil. But none of them realize the promise of a lasting kingdom. But now Jesus is called the son of David. And this means that, as the wise men will say in chapter 2, he is born king of the Jews. He is heir of to that everlasting kingdom, and will bring with him the healing and the deliverance of Messiah. Now, there is one more name here to look at the, in the opening of the genealogy before we move to our main text, and that is Son of Abraham. So, what's in this name? We know that Abraham figures prominently in Genesis and in the New Testament as well as an example of faith, the father of all who believe. But interestingly, Abraham is not, properly speaking, an Israelite. He's the grandfather of Jacob, who will be renamed Israel. But as we meet him at the end of Genesis 11 and moving into Genesis 12, he is born in the city of Ur in Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. And then he moves to Haran, around the border of modern-day Syria and Turkey. In other words, Abram is living as a pagan among the nations until God sovereignly chooses him and calls him to leave his country and kindred and go to the land he will show him. God calls him to leave the nations and walk before him, but he also gives him a promise. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is later clarified in Genesis 22 that it is his offspring that in the nations all through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham is called out of the nations and given the covenant promises of God, and his offspring, and one offspring in particular, will be a blessing to the nations. This is of importance to us who are not Israelites by birth. Messiah is not only for Israel, but is for the nations. So this first line in Matthew is packed with meaning. He starts his gospel with good news. There's a new beginning that has come. The long-awaited Messiah is here. He is heir to the covenant promises of God, of an everlasting kingdom, and he will bring blessing to the nations. Now, we haven't looked at the name Jesus yet. We'll do that under this second heading, to save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was up until this time a relatively common name for Jewish parents to give their sons. After the events that we see in the New Testament... The Jewish people abandon it for fear of association with Jesus of Nazareth. And Christians kind of abandon it out of reverence. But Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. And it means Yahweh, or God, is salvation, or Yahweh saves. When you look at Joshua in the Old Testament, he's a military leader who brings God's people into the promised land, drives out their enemies, and gives them a level of rest. But even as he does so, his very name points him and the people away from him and to God. How did the walls of Jericho come down? Yahweh saves. How did the sun stand still so the Amorites could be defeated? Yahweh saves. How did Israel come out of the wilderness to receive their inheritance in the promised land? Joshua is the instrument. Yahweh saves. Now when we come to Jesus, God sends an angel to Joseph and tells him to name the child Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. This child is the Messiah. He is Yahweh's salvation. As Reverend Wilson, I'm sure, will discuss next week, he is Yahweh in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He's so unique that we see later in the Gospels that he has this self-awareness of being himself salvation, that he says and does things that would be blasphemy in anyone else. But for him, it is the sovereign purpose of God's son. And true to his name, Yahweh is salvation. The case is such that if we are to look to any teacher or preacher, president, governor or king, physician, parent or significant other, our job, money, possessions, power, health, food or drug or anything else for our salvation our deliverance our peace or joy we are robbing god of the glory and honor that he alone is due however when we say jesus saves in no way detract from the glory of God, but rather we exalt the glory of God to accomplish what we could not do for ourselves. As Acts 4.12 tells us, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Note that the reason given is that he will save his people specifically from their sins. This becomes a stumbling block to many of Jesus' day. Even the disciples seem to struggle with this. As even after the resurrection, they're looking for him to restore the kingdom. For most, I think they were looking to God for salvation. They were waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for this new day and a new beginning. But they were looking for another Joshua, another David, a warrior to lead them to victory. The problem is not that Jesus failed to live up to expectation. It's not that they expected a grand salvation And he delivered a truncated salvation. It's actually just the opposite. Their problem was huge. Their problem and our problem was so much bigger than a Roman occupation or injustice or poverty, a lack of religious freedom, disease, and so on. Their problem and our problem is sin. It's sin that's the root of all those other calamities and disorders. It's sin that defiles us. It's sin that from Genesis 3 onward has been driving man away from the presence of God, out of the Garden of Eden, out of the Promised Land. It is sin that will make heaven impervious to our prayers. And sin that will bar us from life in the kingdom, in the presence of God. There can be no Emmanuel. We cannot be with God unless sin is dealt with. Only then can the attending blessings of peace, joy, freedom, justice, and glory be realized. We must be careful not to minimize what it means to be saved from sin. Note that it does not say that he is to call him Jesus because he will forgive his people their sins. Yes, we do receive forgiveness. But to leave it there is to minimize Salvation. It leaves it at being saved from punishment. It totally externalizes salvation in a very similar way to the Jews who had looked for a merely external salvation from Rome. But salvation from sin is so much more than an escape from punishment and penalty. The sovereign purpose of God's Son is to proclaim and to achieve liberty for the captives. This is to be saved from sin. This includes salvation from the dominion of sin, salvation from our slavery to sin. So that Paul can say in Romans 6 For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. To be saved from our sin is so much more than removing a penalty. It's not just that we stand in court and have our sentence removed, it's to have a fundamental change in our nature. To enter into the new Genesis, the new creation, to have our names listed after Jesus in the genealogy. So that John says in John 1 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. The sovereign purpose of God's Son is to save his people from their sin, restoring them by the power of the Holy Spirit to the image of God that was marred in the fall of Adam. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves so that we can be true image bearers, fulfilling God's purpose for us. Praise God for that. One final point of clarification under this heading. Note that this salvation is not universal. It is sovereign. But if we are to partake of so great a salvation, we must be his people. It is only his people who are saved from their sins. His people are not limited to any nation or ethnicity. They are not limited to any particular socioeconomic status. The only factor that limits is repentance and faith in Jesus. To all who receive him who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That invitation is extended to all of you today. If you have already received him, then praise God that he has offered you an assurance of his love this morning. And if you have not, if you have questions about that, I would be delighted to talk to you after the service. I'm sure any of our elders and many of those sitting around you would be. But that brings us to our final heading, living as his people. Having heard of the significance of Jesus' names and seeing God's sovereign purpose to save his people from their sins, how should this impact our lives? How should we live as his people? When we looked at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, gospel means good news, and I think I, I... describe to you how Matthew is kind of excited to share this news. And we should be too. Think of the joy that comes with the birth of a new baby into your family. There are baby showers celebrating in anticipation. And then with the birth, there's additional celebrations, often additional gifts, even from those who previously bought gifts for the shower, because people love having new babies around. Birth announcements shared the joy, sharing pictures and Facebook posts to tell the birth story. We want to tell this news. And whether people are Christians or not, this is good news to share. And they may not even be aware of it, but we're all in effect saying, listen, let me tell you the good news of what God has done in bringing joy and blessing into my life. Now, the recipient of that news will have various reactions, often based on their closeness to the situation. If I tell you that babies are being born in Malawi today, you're probably not sure how you should react to that. Praise God, it's good, but you're not connected with it. Grandparents, on the other hand, will take out pictures. The hip and modern grandparents will take out their phone, maybe make their own Facebook posts, Friends and extended relatives are going to like and comment on these posts, and they're going to visit and maybe prepare meals and just wait with eagerness to hold that child. Church members are going to rejoice and praise God, ooh and ah, maybe squeal with joy from time to time. But this baby here, born 2,000 years ago, nearly 6,000 miles away, it's a birth that we all have interest in. This birth holds greater significance in your life than the birth of a baby into your family. Even if you're the mother who's carried that child inside of you for nine months and it has had a profound impact on your life, still, this birth is more significant and has a greater impact. On your life. Through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But they must hear the news. And as Matthew's gospel closes, we see the one who will be a blessing to all the nations sending his disciples, sending us to the nations with that good news. It is a good news of great joy that is for all the people. Let's share it. Next, we should marvel at the grace made available to us. We are English and German and Indian and Korean and so forth. And the God of Israel sent his son for us. He has welcomed us into his families. His family. If we truly appreciate this, that we are outsiders, apart from God's grace, it should produce in us a profound humility and generosity towards those that we might perceive to be outsiders. We see the extent that God has gone to welcome us, and in turn, we should strive to put no obstacle in the way of welcoming others, including them, and rejoicing over their presence, no matter how different they may seem. The events of this year have made this particularly challenging to put into practice. Tensions are high. We have within our church family views across the entire spectrum of how the coronavirus should be handled. And just as importantly, those same views are held by people outside our church, people who need to know Jesus. And when you consider it from that perspective, people who need Jesus, which, by the way, includes me and you. And it doesn't ultimately matter what you think the data suggests. The real question has to do with our talk about those who wear masks and those who don't, and our actions that go along with it. Are they welcoming to others? Are they rejoicing in the presence of others, considering their need and interest in Jesus? Would they pass the test of Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. This is hard, really hard. The easy thing to do is to play the victim and look at how others are speaking and acting, but each of us is responsible for God for our own words and actions. The hard thing to do, the thing we're being called to do is to embrace that tension in humility In generosity and prayer for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but very similar difficulties have arisen from this being an election year. Again, tensions are high, and we have views within our church family and our community that run across the spectrum. Are discussions in the hallways here welcoming to all, building up, benefiting all who listen? Are they suggesting to some that perhaps they don't fit in here? Let's not let our views on America become a stumbling block to someone feeling they fit in the kingdom of God and belong there I want to close on a lighter and less tense subject we've spoken we have not spoken much about Joseph today but this does relate to the sovereignty of God has anyone here had their, cha- their plans change unexpectedly recently I almost forgot this is Lansdale Presbyterian I'll just wave to Chris and Sally and the boys over in Ireland. We have all been walking through this pastoral transition for a long time. And our plans keep changing. Pastor Keene is on something like his third or fourth final sermon series. Pastor Kennedy is walking through the same kind of things over in Ireland. We're all wondering when is this going to happen? Is there something flawed in the plan? Well, look at Joseph. He plans to be married to an upstanding young woman. And from what we see in Luke 1 about Mary, he's made a good assessment. But his plans seem to change as Mary is found to be with child outside of marriage. And so then he plans to divorce her. And actually, when a woman was found to be with child outside of wedlock, The law at that time required a divorce there. There was a good plan. He's described as a just or a righteous man. But he was also compassionate. And so he determined to do it quietly. This could be done with just two witnesses without making a, a public scandal of the matter. But God is about to reveal to him a better plan. And Joseph responds by changing his plan yet again. And within his sovereign plan, God rather often works this way. He allows us to make plans, good plans, righteous, God-honoring plans, sought through prayer. And then he reveals a better way. Unlike Joseph... He doesn't always tell us why it will be better. But it does function as a test. Are we trusting God or our plan? When we acknowledge the Lord and submit to Him in all our ways, He will make our paths straight. They might seem twisty and turbulent to us at the moment. But like Joseph here, they will lead us straight to Jesus. What we cannot control is within his sovereign will. And it is for our good. Whether the pastoral transition, changing holiday plans, or other aspects of our lives. Let us seek the God. Who sent his son to save. Let's pray. Almighty God. Some trust in chariots. And some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord. Jesus. Messiah. Son of David. Son of Abraham. Impress upon us the wonders of your love that would send your Son to save us from our sins. Let our joy in such a salvation overflow with praise and a burning desire to share this good news. We do pray about our pastoral transition, asking for wisdom and guidance, for doors to be opened, for the Kennedys to arrive sooner than later. We submit our plans to you and trust your timing for your glory and our good. May this time of Advent, a time of waiting and anticipation, be used to grow us and shape us to be more like Jesus.